Thanks, John, for leading us in prayer. I'm going to pray one more time. Tag on. God, uh, hear Sean's prayers, including for his family. Uh, he expressed our hearts uh, so well uh, through his heart. We thank you for him and for the aliveness of your presence with us this morning. We ask that you would open our hearts to your word now as we read. Help us to be, uh, to continue to be attentive to the things that you would have us see and hear and know and become. Show us yourself. Awaken us. Give us life in your name and through your spirit. I pray that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words in any way are inconsistent with your word, may they be completely forgotten. We pray together in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we return this morning uh, for one last Sunday to uh, the first couple of chapters of the book of Acts, where we've been for the last four or five Sundays. Next uh, Wednesday, actually, Ash Wednesday, three days from now, we jump to uh, back into the Gospel of Mark, and we'll be in the Gospel of Mark through the duration of Lent, which is Easter, the end of uh, Lent is Easter, and through the duration of Mark, at which time we'll finish Mark. You remember about the book of Acts that it was written by a man named Luke. The Gospel of Luke was his volume one. The book of Acts is his volume two. The Gospel of Luke is about Jesus and his activity. The Gospel of Luke is very much about the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's activity. Uh, one could also say that the Gospel of Luke is about the Christ and the book of Acts is about the body of Christ. And so in the first couple of chapters of Acts and sometimes beyond, we have learned about the earliest church, about its founding and its calling, about its mission and purpose, about its life together and activity. We've talked about the way it prayed, the way it celebrated the sacraments, about its witnessing boldly. This morning we'll see another aspect of the early church uh, what they were about and really an essential characteristic or trait and a seeming vital byproduct of the Spirit's presence among them. Uh, before we do that, uh, let me uh, give us a little bit of background. It's about 50 days after uh, Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Jesus said, uh, hold on, listen, wait, hang out where you are, stay in Jerusalem to his disciples. That's what they did. And then about 50 days after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection uh, and then ascension, the church, the community of God's people, this little group of disciples, is visited by the Holy Spirit in a way that's powerful, that's audible, that's even visible uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, the newly empowered, energized, and enabled disciple of Jesus, Peter, stands up in the public square, maybe in or around the temple complex, and the timid, formerly timid Peter, begins to preach all that he's come to know about Jesus. In response to that, Luke tells us that 3,000 people, that's a pretty big crowd, 3,000 people responded to his message that day about Jesus and were baptized. What we, what we, what we read now is their story. Beginning at chapter 2, verse 42, listen closely, this is God's word. They, 
in other words, those 3,000 plus people, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number, continued to add to their number, that day those who were being saved. And this passage of scripture, which we've read more than once during the last five weeks, functions as a concise but but yet well-rounded description of the very earliest church and maybe also a template for what a spirit-empowered church might look like today. So our focus this morning will continue to be on this little church description and particularly verses 44 and 45 this morning, which say, All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. I'm going to read that one more time. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And honestly, for a long time, I've wondered about this passage and these verses, and I've struggled with this passage and these verses, seemingly straightforward, but difficult. Are these verses I have asked only descriptive, or are they also prescriptive? In addition to telling his readers how things were, is Luke also telling us how things can be, how things could be, how things should be, how things might be in Christ and under the power of his spirit? There's debate among and for some Christians today and always has been about whether or not the scriptures should be read literally or read metaphorically. This is a passage that's much easier to read metaphorically. Ah. There are some Christians for whom the filling, the empowering, the manifestation and the gifts of the Holy Spirit are critically important and at the forefront of their thinking, their theology, their understanding of what it means to be a Christian, and so also their daily lives and activity, actions. And yet they may not all be ready to read these verses as saying that a central and indispensable facet or characteristic of the spirit-filled life is having everything in common and selling one's own property and possessions to give to anyone who has need. Are you with me? The American missiologist Daryl Guder, partly quoting the renowned South African missiologist David Bosch, has written, Through the ages, Christians have usually found ways around the clear meaning of Scripture. We can thus read the history of Christian theology as the story of our various ways of reducing the gospel, especially in its particularity and specificity, to make it more compatible to our world and more palatable to our views or for ourselves. Elsewhere, Guter has written, Western theology can be characterized as a process of explaining why the teachings of Jesus do not apply to us. There's a little truth in there maybe for some of us. 
And yet there it is, the word of God bearing witness to the spirit and the way of the very first community of Christ. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And it's beautiful, frankly. I think we all see the beauty in that. The majesty in who and how they were in the early days. Can it be beautiful in that way today? Can it still be that beautiful for us? Can we be a part of a church like that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Of course, most of us don't have a model for such a spirit-inspired, spirit-filled, spirit-united way of living. We just don't. Most of us grew up with a model of church that was a building that we went to maybe with our families if we were young once a week or every couple of weeks or periodically on Sunday morning. Maybe we as children or young people went to a Sunday school class or participated in a ministry periodically. We sat faithfully while someone read from the scriptures and prayed. We stood when they told us to stand and sing. And we contributed to that organization's or church's budget within reason at a level that adequately assuaged some of our guilt. At a level that we felt was coming at least close to generous generous, so that we could feel good about ourselves privately, of course. We would give enough to hopefully make a difference, but not so much as to make a significant impact on our own lifestyle. Kind of found that sweet spot, or maybe that's just part of my younger story. Few of us, if any of us grew up in a church or in the context of a community of Jesus people in which everyone was often together and had everything in common, selling property and possessions as anyone had needs. That, of course, was a fringe group in the 60s. That, of course, was the 1970s. That, of course, was the hippie movement and communism. Many Christians like us, on the other hand, belong to respectable, buttoned-down suburban churches that existed largely like clubs for their well-adjusted members. We've never had a model, most of us, of a church in like this one in Acts chapter 2. We haven't had a model like that, except or other than in the scriptures. And a part of us may think it wouldn't work. Shannon, it's not feasible. It just wouldn't work practically. It's not realistic. You know, there are scoundrels and con artists everywhere who would take advantage of other people just as scammers do by phone now and fishers do by email all of the time. And there are people in our midst who feel entitled to the things that others have. We know those issues. Others will take advantage of people's generosity if we attempted to live like this. There would be people who can work, but who don't. There would be such people in the church who wouldn't work, wouldn't contribute, wouldn't give, would only ask, take, drain, like leeches, loafers, freeloaders, and the word lazy. It's been proven. Some have said that communism doesn't work. 
and socialism too, for that matter. But what is seemingly affirmed in this passage in the early part of Acts was not an economic system or a political system or a manifesto like communism or socialism, but rather a way of being together in Christ, through Christ, with Christ, and in his spirit, whose fruit, do you remember, was love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And what if the fruit of fruit of goodness and kindness and peace and patience, what if the fruit of that kind of fruit was generosity? It would seem to be big-heartedness, as we read in the book of Deuteronomy, open-handedness. What if the fruit of the fruit of the Spirit, which was love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, was generosity and open-heartedness and open-handedness. That would seem to make sense. Would not, might not, the fruit of such fruit cause us to be more open-handed people? The English word had in verse 44 is the Greek word icon from the root word echo in Greek which can be translated into English as either had or held, as either to have or to hold. Either way. That word goes either way. All the believers were together and held everything in common. Their way of holding their things was to hold them in common or to hold them together Everyone's holding their stuff together, which is a really fairly novel idea because we tend to, or my nature is, to hold my stuff, and you can hold your stuff. I don't need your help in holding my stuff. Get your hands off of my stuff. All the believers were together and held everything in common. And the word common in Greek is koinos, from which we get the word koinonia, which occurs 19 times in the New Testament, and which, for example, in verse 42 is most often translated in the New Testament, fellowship. And we like that word because it connotes donuts, doesn't it? Yes. Fellowship in the English New Testament, but which in other places in English New Testaments is also translated, same word, koinonia, we love that word. Translated contribution, sharing, communion, distribution, participation, and partnership, which all point to something more than a building one drops in on once a week, but rather something more connected and more personal, in which one might be invested and bound together by choice. And so there was in the early church an uncommon sort of connectedness or fellowship that involved and that included the community of Christ holding together as one body the things that they as individuals possessed. And this might seem not just unusual, off-putting and uncomfortable, but even threatening to some of us. Just raise your hand internally. If there's anything about this that feels just a little bit threatening, I'm not asking for an outward show of hands, just an inward show of hands. 
At the same time, such feelings may reveal more about us than they do about the scriptures, more about me than they do a heavy dose of God's spirit and what God's spirit was bringing about there in Jerusalem. Now, uh, Rick Warren has a, a knack for simplifying things and sometimes oversimplifying things. So take this with maybe a grain of salt if you must. But Rick Warren has written, capitalism says what is mine is mine. Communism says what is yours is mine. Christianity says what, what is mine is also yours. And that seemed to be the ethic, at least with regard to property and possessions in the very earliest church. And I wouldn't be surprised if during the coming days we receive a request or two to transfer people's, someone's membership to another church. I'm not suggesting that. I'm not suggesting that anyone manage their personal assets or property or possessions in any specific way. We're just looking at the scriptures together here this morning, a very innocent endeavor. The same scriptures that say in another place in Paul's letter to the Romans, where he gets practical about what it looks like to be living in God's spirit. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Each member belongs to all of the others. Now turn and look at someone around you and say, we belong to each other. Go ahead and do that. Now turn and look at someone else, maybe in front of you or behind you, and say, we belong to each other. Repeat that. You're not all doing it. One more time. Look at someone else farther away that you don't really like and say, in Christ, we belong to each other. Yes, we do. Now get out your wallets. Get out your wallets and your purses or open up your phone and dial up pen pal Zell or Venmo. Come on. I'm kidding. Mostly. At the same time, we have to agree with John Wesley, who was the founder of the Methodist Church, who said more than once, the last part of a person to be converted is a person's wallet. Is there truth there? One of our values is cultivating spiritual growth continuously. There you see it at the bottom, cultivating spiritual growth continuously. And we mostly like the idea of that. It sounds good. That's what we want. That's what we want to be about. That's what we strive for. But in the end, a person can't grow spiritually. Or at least there's a ceiling on spiritual growth, I think. If the living out of one's faith doesn't also engage and involve one's things, possessions, property, assets. There's a ceiling you're going to bump up against in spiritual growth. If your assets, property, possessions, money, wealth are not also engaged in that process. Someone famous once said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And the inverse of that must also be true. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where where your heart is, there your treasure will be. And so we see that the nascent church, the praying church, the sacramental church, the boldly witnessing church, the spirit-filled church also lived open-handedly with one another. 
And some see this as just another miracle in the early church. First, that God's spirit could bring together in unity such a rich diversity of people, people from all over the known world or the Mediterranean world, from all sorts of cultures, all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of ways of thinking, all sorts of socioeconomic groups. Maybe one of the first miracles of the early church is that this collective of people is all able to come together. And then the follow-up miracle on God's Spirit's part was that they shared or they held things in common, this very diverse group of people. There's 59 one-anothers in the New Testament, 59 different places where it says they loved one another. They were unified with one another. Some of those one-anothers have to do very explicitly with power, with possessions, with property, with assets. And such a radical fellowship, sharing, participation, distribution, that sort of communion, is that possible for us? We gather around the communion table once a month or so, and there's this one anotherness about that, and there's supposed to be a mysterious or mystical connectedness and bond of spiritual family in that. But that communion or that koinonia or unity or oneness goes to a completely different level when it involves our whole person, our whole being, our whole kingdom or that over which we have governance, including property and possessions. And that's a good thing. And so what might that look like? I agree that entering into such a realm and such a way and such a community can be complicated and certainly could be really hard for lots of reasons, one of which is that it involves other people who are also imperfect, thinking about themselves, people like me. But it can also be really freeing. There can also be joy in that. There can also be goodness and life transformation and blessing and, as we've said, a means of growing spiritually. If Luke can be trusted, and I think he can, the early church somehow pulled this, pulled off this wave being together in a group of 3,000 people, at least for a while, and just that itself is a miracle and incredible. I would think that this would be much easier to do with a small group, and that's why I encourage you regularly to be a part of a small group. In some ways, these larger groups are difficult to achieve that sort of communion or fellowship or oneness. As one means of trying to practice what the Spirit led the Acts 2 church to do and to live and to be, we also we have a deacon's fund. It's one way programmatically that we try to live out what we read in the scriptures. It's imperfect. But if you have need, when you have need, we have this fund that we call the deacon's fund. And we use it discreetly and faithfully and hopefully with love. And so if you or someone that you know ever has need, we'll do the best we can and then we'll be challenged by God's spirit to meet that need how we can. That's one way of this caring for one another and holding things together. 
periodically I get to see behind the scenes just kind of because of where I am. Get to see behind the scenes of our life together as a congregation. And I've seen numerous times the living out of this. We don't see it so publicly, but it's there privately. And every time I do, I'm humbled and encouraged to see the beautiful church taking care of itself. Not because it has to, but because it gets to. There's nothing in this that's a law or a requirement or a commandment or a rule, but it is simply the byproduct of God's spirit acting and moving in God's people. Are you with me on that? Someone spoke up here a few months ago and was talking about that person's living out of their faith. And what they said just was so good. The person said, quite humbly, God's given me this. I figured out how much I need to live on. And everything else is held together. Wow. True story. No names. It was shared with me by the recipient this past week. The recipient who years ago in this congregation had needs and another member of the congregation literally regularly gave that person blank checks and said, whatever you need, fill it in, cash it, use it. Now, for the younger people, a check is a piece of paper (laughs) that you used to sort of write your name on an amount, and your bank sort of recognized that as legal currency, etc. Maybe you saw on the news, uh, a Southwest Airlines uh, ticket counter uh, recently, a father with his two-year-old daughter getting on a plane with one ticket. He bought the ticket aware of the under two-year-old rule that you don't have to buy a ticket for the under two-year-old if they sit on your lap. So he bought one ticket for this important trip in his life, whatever it was. Not realizing or really thinking that his daughter at the time was under two years old, but when he flew, she would have just had her birthday and be two years old. And so the Southwest Airlines ticket counter said, you need a ticket for her. I'm sorry, that's the way it is. And by that time, of course, when you get to the ticket counter and the day that you fly, the ticket that you bought for $150 now costs, in this case, $750. And he said... I don't have it. What, I, what, what can I do? And another woman who had no relationship to him at all, no knowledge of him at all, saw what was going on and said, I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. And he said, you don't understand. It's $750. I understand. Let me get your name and number so I can pay you back when I'm able to. Nope. And at the Southwest ticket, Southwest Airlines ticket counter, They saw what God through his spirit has called the church to be and to do. And we can do this. Just to sort of to add to your thinking about when we say the Apostles' Creed about once a month, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the communion of saints. It's that. 
It's not about the communion table that we're talking about when we say the communion of saints. It's the fellowship of the saints across the centuries. It's that integratedness. It's that for one anotherness. It's that generosity. It's that we belong to each other. I believe in the communion of the saints, the participation of the body of Christ together. Let's think about that when we say that. A person doesn't have to live in a kibbutz. Okay, that's a, uh, they can, they're welcome to. You could, here or in Israel or Palestine or wherever you want. A person doesn't have to live in a kibbutz or by the mantra, mi casa, su casa. On the other hand, the spirit-empowered, spirit-filled, spirit-led, spirit-driven church is one that holds their things in some way in freedom and in joy and in generosity and in peace in common. And so when there are needs, God addresses those needs. We can be that people. We can do this and we can be this. God will help. Let's pray. Continue to convert us, God. We acknowledge and we confess our resistance at times and in ways. Continue to welcome us into the freedom and joy of life in your spirit together. Forgive us for choosing isolation, for choosing fear or protectionism or safety. When we say that we believe in you, have faith in you, trust you. Help us to live in that trust in the fullness of our lives, our activities, our dispositions, and our resources. That the needs of our world and the needs of the church and the needs of one another might be met in your grace. Bring this about in each of us and together. We pray with hope and confidence and joy and gratitude in Jesus' name. Amen.